It's Essential Pittsburgh. I'm Paul Guggenheimer. Author and historian David McCullough counts Pulitzer Prizes and National Book Awards among the honors he has received. His books on historic events like the Johnstown Flood and historic figures like Harry S. Truman and John Adams have topped bestseller lists. David McCullough recently visited his hometown to be honored by Duquesne University and give a commencement address at Shadyside Academy. While in town, he spoke with Essential Pittsburgh producer Marcus Charleston, who began by asking if his books, Ken Burns Specials and Networks Devoted to History, were rekindling the country's interest in historical subjects. Well, it's certainly to the advantage of the education of our country that public television, and particularly people like Ken Burns, have been producing the marvelous historical films that have been front and center on PBS for 10, 20, 30 years now. And I must say, too, that I am immensely gratified that books of the kind that I write and others write, history and biography, are gaining in popularity, gaining in the attention given to them steadily, often because so many people realize that they didn't get as much history as they should have when they were in college or, or in school. But I'm very concerned about the decline in the teaching of history, particularly at our colleges and universities, and the rapid decline of history as a required course. Something nearly 80% or more than 80% of the colleges and universities today, good colleges and universities today, no longer require history in order to graduate. And I find that a serious mistake. I think certain subjects like English and history and civics should be required. But I also think that students ought to be required to take courses because they ought to understand, uh, if they don't already understand it, that in life some things are required. <laughs> you just can't always have it exactly as the way you want it, particularly if you want a full liberal arts or good, solid education. It's often said that history repeats itself. And we're at a time right now in the country where a lot of people are feeling disenfranchised. Can you tell us about the time in history that you think you would like to see reimagined today? Well, I am very um, annoyed when I hear people on talk shows, uh, supposedly wise and learned figures, say, well, you have to realize that was a simpler time. There was no simpler time, ever. If anything, the times sometimes past were more complicated, more uncertain, more painful. Let's take, for example, just the influenza epidemic of 1918-1919, during which in this country over 500,000 people died. Now, if that were to happen today, for example, given our size of our population, there'd be a million 500,000 people died in less than a year. And at the time, we had no idea where it came from, how long it would stay, if it would ever go away, or how we could make it go away. Now imagine if 1,500,000 people were dying in our country, every day we would be going hysterical. But you get through these things. People get through them. Now, if it isn't a simpler time past, it is also a very different time. And we have to understand that people were different in their different time. In the time of the revolution, for example, 
there was no anesthetics available to everyone. There were diseases of all kinds that people died from, typhoid and others. There were the painful business of having a tooth pulled or seeing a child die in front of your eyes with no way to solve that problem. Travel was hard as can be and often very uncomfortable and dangerous and so forth and so on. And longevity was much briefer. But they knew no other life. They knew no other world. And they also could not foresee what was ahead. There is no foreseeable future. Never was, and it won't ever be. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. We're all the result of people who've influenced us and people who helped us or educated us or people who've been our rivals or even our enemies. We learn from that. We are shaped by that. Harry Truman said the only new thing in the world is the history you don't know. And that's a very good line. And it's not altogether true, but it's a good thing to understand. If we think we've got it tough, if we think that this is an uncertain, ugly time, yes, in many ways it is. But it's not new. It's happened before. So we've seen animosity and rivalry and ugly threats and the rest many times over. But we've also seen people of purpose, people of character, people who believe that aspiring to achievement of value is a worthy way to live. We've seen times when greed wasn't what was the deciding factor and so forth. And we can learn from those times and from those people. And we owe them so much that just as a matter of courtesy, we ought to know about them and know what they did that has benefited us personally and as a country. It's been said that you can't move forward without knowing where you've been. And we're in your hometown of Pittsburgh, yes. which is held up as a model of reinvention. How does the Pittsburgh of today compare to the Pittsburgh you grew up with? And you've said that the story of Pittsburgh is also the story of America. Well, I think there's no one spot on the map of this continent, this country, that I feel is so rich with the history of our country. It's got everything. It's where the French and Indian War began. It's where the opening of the West began. It's where industrial America got going. It's also where industrial America of the time when I was a child has virtually disappeared. But the city made a comeback, got up after it had been knocked down, and has rebirthed in every imaginable field, in medicine, in the great universities of the town, in high tech. This is an exciting place to be now. But it always was. And it's a story town. That's one of the reasons I love it. River towns are always story towns. And here we got three rivers, not just one. So it's full of history, innovation, ideas, uh, have burgeoned here. It's, it's easy to talk about the innovation in Silicon Valley, for example. <laughs> it's been going on here for a couple of hundred years, and we need to know more about it. Speaking of stories, you've written about so many historical events and people. How do you decide on the topic, especially a topic that you're going to spend the next two or three years living and breathing every day? Well, sometimes it's the idea comes from something I've already written. Sometimes it comes from an editor or a friend who suggests something, and it just sort of clicks with me. But 
my feeling has been I want to give credit where credit's due or long overdue. I felt, for example, that both John Adams and Harry Truman were presidents whose importance had been neglected and whose courage and character deserved attention, particularly in a time when courage and character sometimes seem to be in short supply, particularly in positions of leadership, political leadership. I love story as a part of life. I first started out thinking I was going to be a playwright or a novelist. It never occurred to me that I might wind up writing history. But I got curious about what happened at Johnstown, Pennsylvania in 1889 that caused the death of all those people and the complete destruction of a whole city. And I couldn't find a book that satisfied questions that I had. So I thought, I'll write the book I'd like to be able to read. And that got me going. And as soon as I started telling a story that really happened and about people who really were on the scene, were involved, were the heroes or the villains or whatever, I realized this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that's what I've been doing. And you've had some famous journalists and playwrights who served as mentors for you, Thornton Wilder, Robert Penn Warren, John Hersey, John yeah. O'Hara. Yeah. How did they shape your work? Well, I would add a few more. Uh, Conrad Richter wrote the wonderful trilogy about the opening of Ohio. He was very encouraging to me and taught me a great deal about brevity. And I also feel very strongly indebted to Strunk and White and their wonderful elements of style, which I urge anyone who wants to write to read, keep it handy. Thornton Wilder was the one who, when asked how he or why he wrote the plays he did or the novels he did, said he imagined a story he'd love to see done on stage or read in a book. And if it didn't exist, he would write it so he could see it done on stage and read it in a book. Well, I took that idea to heart with my Johnstown project. Thornton Wilder and John Hersey and Robert Penn Warren were all present as members of the faculty or as fellows of Yale University where I went. And so they were on campus. And imagine being able to come into the dining hall at lunch and there's Thornton Wilder sitting having lunch and you go over and sit down and have lunch with him. What a privilege. And I didn't realize at the time how influential that was going to be in my choice of vocation, but it was very influential. Writing focuses the mind in a way nothing else does. And you find yourself having insights or ideas that you think, how in the world did I come up with that? It's because the brain tightens in in a way and becomes productive in a way that doesn't happen if you just sit there. It works, too, with talking. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., the wonderful physician, doctor, father of the justice of the Supreme Court, said talking is a very good way to find out what you think. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. What are you working on next? Can you give us a preview of the next project? At this stage, I am chewing over, savoring, thinking about probably eight different ideas and uh, trying to make up my mind. But I, uh, I love what I do. I get up in the morning. I want to get right back to it. And uh, I feel I've been the luckiest fellow in the world to have had the working life that I've had and to have the family life that I've had. But it has nothing to do with becoming well-to-do or well-known. or It's trying to get it right. 
down on paper and get the feeling of life in it because none of these people did these things when they were dead. They were alive. They were human beings. And you could learn so much from them. And they become people you know in many ways better than you know people in real life because, for one thing, in real life, you can't read other people's mail. People don't write letters anymore. These people poured themselves out in letters that are simply superb. And you can really find out what were they worried about, what were they most proud of, what was stirring their ambition and so forth. One thing that you always pick up on and address is the human part of the human condition. And many of the people that you write about had to face a lot of adversity. Yes. Has that taught you something about yourself in terms of learning about these people and writing about them? Well, there's an old novelist rule, keep your hero in trouble. And there's great truth to that. The genius of the Wright brothers was that they saw how soaring birds, birds that can get up in the air, can stay up in the air without flapping their wings. And how did they do that? And they spent hours and hours watching hawks and gulls and kitty hawk on the outer banks, particularly the great gannets, which have a wingspan of about five or six feet. And in one of his notebooks, Wilbur Wright put down, no bird ever soared in a calm. The old Irish saying of may the wind always be at your back was not the way to go about it. You need that adversity. You need that head-on wind in order to get off the ground. And that was, in effect, the way they saw life. If you have nothing but comfort, you're not going to do anything. Uh, it's when you've got a little trouble that you've got to overcome. And that's when you start to, to kick into gear. And they're right. Theodore Roosevelt said, black care rarely sits behind the rider whose pace is fast enough. If you're down and out, if you're blue, if you've got worries and troubles and feeling sorry for yourself, get out and do something. Don't sit around and mope and feel sorry for yourself and blame other people for your problems. You've been awarded so many honors. You have a bridge named after you here in Pittsburgh. What would you like your legacy to be? What would I like my legacy to be? He did the best he could and had a good time at it. When you're in Pittsburgh, do you find time to drive across the former 16th Street Bridge and think, hey, I have a bridge named after me. Well, it was one of the most heartfelt days of my life when that happened. And to have a bridge in my wonderful hometown that I dearly love, have something named for me was an honor I never even imagined happening. And of course, I love bridges. And I think they're emblems of some of the best of of the human spirit. So to have a bridge over the Allegheny River in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with my name on it, that's riding high. <laughs> and, and I'm ever grateful to my hometown for doing that. And I come back as often as I can, and I see a few old friends, and I like to go out and see the house that I grew up in, go down memory lane. And I love the fact that so much of it looks just the same. It's wonderful. David McCullough, author, historian, biographer, it's truly, truly been an honor to have you on the Central Pittsburgh and to speak with you today. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Home, sweet home. 
Coming up, food critic Halby Klein looks at the best restaurants in Pittsburgh. It's Essential Pittsburgh on 90.5 WESA.